This is the UU Perspective with your host, Sharon Merrill. This is episode number 30 of the UU Perspective, where you hear weekly interviews from Unitarians and Unitarian Universalists that are changing the world. Whether you're already a member or a seeker exploring the faith, there is something here for everyone. So as you sit, walk, jog, or drive, enjoy the conversations you're about to hear. My guest today is Lisa Presley, and she is a congregational life consultant, and she has been an ordained minister for 25 years, and presently she focuses on doing work with congregations and having them do better. And she also oversees transitions for the region and oversees intercultural competency work in the region and as chair of the UU Committee on Military Ministry that supports our military chaplains. So we're going to ask her questions about the congregational life and and the relationships inside of the congregations and about conflict resolution. How is it do we relate to our congregations members and, and when there is an upsetting moment, how do we deal with that? And so let's get to it. And here is Lisa. Welcome, Lisa. And uh, I've already told everybody a little bit about you, but I'd like you to take a moment and give us a little insight about you and your involvement in the UU community. Well, I am a lifelong Unitarian Universalist. I was honored to be born into a family that had already found a religious community with us. So that for me, difference between me and somebody who's come in more recently is that every day I still have to choose whether or not I'm going to be Unitarian Universalist, but I didn't have to wonder about was there a place for me from the beginning. So I've done almost every role possible in congregational life. Um, I've you know, been on boards, I've been president, I've taught RE, I've shoveled snow. Um, I probably would have cut grass if I was in a more temperate climate. And uh, and I've, uh, I'm just completing my 24th year of ordained ministry as well. I've lived on both the Canadian side and the American side of the, the border in North America. I hold dual citizenship as a Canadian. And, um, and being in another culture, even though it's quite similar, it's, it's also vastly different. Being in another culture for 20 years really helped me understand how to under uh, to look at culture and to understand living in the states again. So let's talk about your involvement in conflict resolution. There's an article you wrote, and were in reference to congregational life and how the relationship just isn't enough anymore. And so let's let's get into that a little bit. Well, the the title of the article is Congregations, Conflict, and Mission. And it came about after I serve as a member of a committee on ministry for a field staff person who, who does the same kind of work I do, the congregational life consulting. And in that conference call that we had, we were talking about the issues that she was dealing with in congregations that are similar to the kinds of things that I deal with in our consulting congregation, you know, congregations when I'm consulting with them. And one of the people on the phone just came out with a very crystal clear understanding 
of what the underlying issue is when we're when congregations are in conflict. As far, not as far as how do they get in conflict, you know, all that kind of stuff, but about whether or not it's possible for a congregation to come back gracefully from conflict and be able to be more resilient than they were before. And the key to that, um, Diane Bozeman is her name, and she is uh, a Unitarian in Canada, so it's only Unitarian there. And uh, she also works for the United Church of Canada. So she has had that kind of experience as well. And what the key was is that in order for a congregation to come back from conflict, they have to have something larger than just their relationships with each other that binds them together. So the issues in conflict is that if it gets beyond a certain level, it starts to impact on the relationships that people have between each other. You need a certain degree of conflict to get anything creative to happen. You need to be able to have the conversation that different ideas uh, and different perspectives bring in order to make a better decision. So if you're having a, you know, you'll eat always at the same restaurant, for example, unless you have somebody who says, you know, I don't want to eat that food anymore. Let's try this restaurant. That's a conflict, but it provides another answer that's possible because you're actually collaborating with each other. However, in conflict, there's a point at which it becomes more of an us-them as it deepens and becomes more problematic. And at that point, what happens is the relationships, rather than being able to build on each other and come up with a better solution, become frayed and become, um, and it becomes all about us versus them and it becomes personal. So if all a congregation has is relationships that keep them together, then they can't find a way to move forward. If they have a shared understanding of why they exist, what their mission and vision is, how they want to make a difference in the world, then they have the possibility of saying, okay, we didn't like each other about the restaurant choice, but here we can make a different decision because about how we want to be together because we know we have this overarching purpose that we agree upon and we can, by committing ourselves to that, find a way back into relationship with each other. And if you only have relationship, how, what do you call upon to bring you back together when you, when you get so angry with each other? So you're finding a commonality within the church, that connection in the church. And so when you're talking about, oh, you can't base it only on that relationship, is it that relationship of just knowing each other? Because I think of the relationship as it's that relationship inside the church, but it sounds like it's a little different than that. Well, yes, because in many congregations, um, if you're not clear about why the congregation exists, if the congregation is only there to provide sanctuary, which is an important thing to provide, but if it's only about sanctuary, if it's only about social connection, if it's only about interpersonal support of the people already in the congregation, when you're fighting with each other, there's no greater purpose that can help you come back into that relationship well with each other. So, you know, like just think about it with, uh, with a family member, friend or spouse or partner, 
when you've had a really bad fight, unless there's something deeper to which you're committed other than simply that relationship, what's going to happen is you're going to break apart and you won't find a way to come back together. Divorces, whether it be friendship or a significant other, divorces in relationships and breakoffs happen because you, you don't know how to bridge the gap that's between there. And in congregational life, what happens is the mission of the congregation, their purpose in the world is that greater thing to which everyone can turn their eyes and then they can re-knit the relational by being, um, by being together, by working for that greater purpose. So they, they need to, the greater purpose allows them a place to focus their energy so that then they can learn how to re-knit the basis of their relationship, their interpersonal relationships one with the other. So when people in a congregation are angry at each other, by having the sense of the congregation's mission or vision or what they're working on that they can hold together, it allows them to find a way to knit back together the raveled parts of their relationships with each other. And if all it is is relationship, then they don't have anything that allows that more natural healing of the relationship while you're serving something greater. So it might be that the congregation's mission is something like feeding the homeless or running a, a summer program for kids or doing recycling efforts for their city or whatever. But they have to know why they exist beyond knowing how to, knowing how to support each other as individuals if they want to be able to more readily recover rather than split in the aftermath of a large fight. Are there, does it seem like a lot of congregations are having these conflicts nowadays? It seems to me it's happened more and more. Um, I noticed a really large increase in congregational conflict following the, the terrorist actions of September 11th, 2001. Because at that point, one of the things I realized is that raised the anxiety in our, congreg- in our nation. We had this sense in the U.S. of being protected, of being special, of being immune. And that allowed us to, to realize we really are more like the rest of the world, that disasters can happen here, that we are not isolated and sheltered from all of that. That raised the the um, the overall anxiety level in the in the culture. Add to that then the financial recessions that started, you know, depending on where you live, either in 2005, 2007, 2008, 9, whatever, and in some places that are really still lasting, uh, that also shifted imperceptibly or unconsciously our sense that life was going well and that we would leave our progeny better off than, uh, than we had been ourselves, you know, that this onward and upward financial momentum. And so at that point, people began to get anxious about their own finances, about their financial future, and that negatively impacted our congregations because our congregations could no longer just build it and expect people would come. They were struggling with the people who had to pay their mortgage. That also meant that the larger parts of the UUA 
structure were were also tapped because congregations had to make the tough decisions between supporting the the larger movement and which might mean that they had to let go people who had worked for them and so it became this real um, unsettled ground for people and we've never really gotten our footing again so all of that the the September 11th the financial uncertainty, the scrambling for funding and all of that, um, and all of that challenged our domestic and also sometimes our congregational culture and sense of ourselves. And we've not really done the work to be able to come up with a new narrative about who we are and what it means to be successful and what it means to uh, live the best lives we want. So we haven't rewritten that metaphor and we don't and that narrative. So what that does is it allows for conflict to come up more because we are uncertain. Most of our congregations don't do the work of figuring out mission and vision and who they are, often because I think there's this unconscious fear that we think that somehow the other people will define it in a way that cuts me out, where I no longer belong. And so rather than being clear about who we are and what our purpose is, we choose instead to live in a more murky field where everyone feels that they are welcome. And in times of conflict, it's also, what also happens is that most of the decisions that are made are ones that preserve the status quo rather than look beyond that and uh, find a way to move forward into a different form or a different organization or a different metaphor, different vision that, uh, rep- that shows who they can be rather than who they always have been. And a lot of it, too, I see, you know, we're, we're talking more about the whole multi-site idea and, you know, reaching beyond our congregation walls, building, the building itself. And so does that have a lot to play into it, too, as far as recreating a new vision and mission? It, it can. Um, I actually find it's a very small percentage of congregations who are doing that because they haven't been able to figure out the imagination of how that works. I think it would benefit more of our congregations and would provide more of the financial stability that congregations seem to crave if they can find ways to share resources in that matter. And it also can bring a whole new spark of energy in that. But um, so, but it is that sense of what is our mission and vision. The multi-site stuff, from my understanding, comes from a sense of realizing that we have a saving message and that there are people in this world who need that message. And we can no longer just close the door after I've entered in. It's okay. Nobody, we don't have to reach out to anybody else because I've found my place. And that sort of evangelical zeal of understanding how Unitarian Universalism has made our own individual lives better means that we then must share it with others. And we think that evangelism can only be done in the way of knocking on doors that we hate, whereas sometimes it's just making who we are available in new and exciting ways. So you work with congregations, right? You're a consultant? Yes, um, I'm part of the UUA's field staff, so I work in a team. There are six of us program staff who serve 200 congregations from the Dakotas through Michigan, the north half of the country. I say we are proudly serving 13 of the nation's states. All right, very good. 
It's not quite McDonald's billions, but you know, it's close enough. Exactly. So you then are going into congregations and are you creating like workshops for them? We do a variety of things. Um, we, we create uh, webinars and workshops for congregations. Uh, we, we are moving more and more to having workshops that are done in collaboration between two or three or four congregations or more, because part of our job, we believe, too, is to help introduce them to each other and get some interconnection and allow them to be able to learn and build on what they can, you know, from each other and do with each other. So we do these those there. We also do provide coaching for both lay leaders and clergy about what's going on. Do a lot of our our work is done through um, through email and telephone and Skype and other modalities of electronic communication in coaching. We a long time ago realized that that the older model of regional staff or district staff was that we would come in on our white chargers and save the day. And we in mid-America realized that that's not our job. First of all, we can't do it. Uh, You know, it it just is too wearing. Uh, But also we realized our job was to build a congregation's capacity instead of being that capacity. And with that, we shifted toward empowering finding ways to train and empower the lay leaders. We have a whole slew of webinars that are archived. We can do that. And, and we, can, you know, we do consult with congregations. We have an adjunct, adjunct consulting pool where uh, if a congregation wants someone to come lead their board retreat or something like that, we have consultants who are available to work with congregations that way. And now, obviously you come in when a conflict happens. Do you at times kind of avoid that happening by coming in and doing work with congregations so it doesn't happen? I mean, wouldn't this be great just to build better mission and vision relationships between each other before something happened? Yes, Sharon. It would be lovely if congregations invited us in to do the work with them before a conflict erupts. But generally, we are only brought in once the conflict happens. Because of our congregational polity, we don't have the authority or the ability to go into a congregation and, ma- and ask them to do particular things like work on mission and vision. And it's usually actually quite late in the conflict that they call. We all think that we can figure out how to get ourselves out of this conflict because we're good, smart people. And we never expect it's going to get so bad. So people contact us when it's already escalated to the point that there are dividing lines that are very clear in the congregation, and then it becomes even more difficult for the congregation to come back. The, the small conflicts are, or when a conflict is small, it's much easier to try to figure out ways forward that can honor everyone, even if it doesn't honor everybody's decision about what the answer should be. But once it's past that uh, that dividing point, which is usually when we get called, it it's very hard to bring a congregation back from the edge. So is it for the lack of people not realizing that you're available, or is it somebody coming in at that last moment and saying, oh, wait, here's this solution? Well, we, I mean, they might not know that we're available. That, that can always be part of the, the solution, but I think it's more the sense 
that most Unitarian Universalists believe we can sort it out on our own. We're smart people, and people don't expect that it will get as vitriolic as it does. They just think everything, you know, well, we're all good people. We like each other. It will be fine. And it can escalate so quickly. One of the things that happens, too, is I think that the pace of conflict, how long it takes you to get up to the higher levels, has, has that time frame has shortened considerably because of the use of email. What happens is people send out an email, and they don't just have a conversation with someone they're annoyed with. They will send an email, and they will copy 29 other people. And in email, we can't tell at all what inflection is there, what the intent is. And when we are feeling upset and hurt and attacked, we will often read the worst into it rather than to be able to come at it from our best selves, to be able to ask the question, well, you know, this sounds a little yucky here, but I wonder if that's the way they meant it. Gee, I guess I'll ask them. No, usually instead it's let's send another flaming email back. And the first thing that we always tell congregations is if there's any kind of conflict, um, you have to stop the email immediately. And, and uh, sometimes that works, but sometimes there are people who at that point has just gotten to be such a personal thing with them that no one's going to tell me not to send email. They are just trying to stifle us. Unitarian Universalists are not good with authority. And so, uh, especially in times of conflict. So it gets out of hand so quickly because of email. How did you get into this, doing this? Well, I, you know, I'm a lifelong Unitarian Universalist. I'm just completing my 24th year of ordained ministry. I held almost every role as a lay leader before I did that. Uh, you know, congregational president, board member, snow shoveler, bookkeeper, you know, all, I mean, you know. I've uh, taught RE, I've run finance campaigns, all of that kind of stuff. So I've done all of that. And um, the way I got into working at the the UUA level in field staff was because of how much I love our faith and our tradition and how much I love our congregations. I went into the ministry because I loved the people and I love church and being part of it. And what's sort of ironic is that by becoming a minister, that which I loved, which was the gathered people that I was a part of, changed because I could no longer be a part of it in the same way as a minister as I could as a layperson. So I went into the ministry because I loved the church, and I lost that version of the church. And so my new church and community became my colleagues, my ministerial colleagues, became my church community. And because I loved them so much, I thought, you know, I know I can serve well in this other role. And so I stepped up into the congregational life or field staff or district executive. You know, it's gone by so many different names. And and the irony there is that, of course, I lost that community because now I'm no longer a peer for that group. I am seen either as a great resource or a thorn in the side or um, – Gosh, I think someone once called me a petty bureaucrat out to ruin their career. Um, <laughs> the name will be withheld. Um, and, and so, you know, so, so it was just it's because I believe in Unitarian Universalism and its ability to transform people's lives. 
I believe in our gathered communities, whether they're bricks and mortar or online or whatever combination thereof. And I think that we have a message that can heal the world. So this is, I followed my, my love and my skill set. Since working inside of the, being on the Congregational Life staff, what have you seen has been the biggest change since you began? Oh, that's a darn good question. So as you, UA staff, of course, I have no opinion uh, or of any of the political things or, you know, governance changes or anything like that because we serve at the behest of congregations. We don't tell them how they want us to serve uh, in that larger way. But I think probably... Well, one of the biggest things that is changing, and I don't know if our congregations are adapting well to it, is that we've really become to understand that the nature of church, of religious community, has to change and already has changed. The congregation that I grew up in, the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, um, and, and that form and structure of congregational life that depended on volunteers so heavily that um, that assumed that there were always two people in the household and one who could donate all their hours and their expertise in doing things. That no longer exists. It really stopped existing probably in the 90s and 2000s, but it's really clear now that we have to find new ways to organize our congregations and new ways to be if we're going to be relevant to the people of today's generation. It used to be that people socialized through committee meetings. Well, today's um, younger generations don't want to be in committee meetings. They want to be doing something in the world. They want to know that their lives have value and meaning because sometimes they're trapped economically in things that don't let them know that. And so our churches really need to change how they view uh, religious landscape. Mm. Yes, very true. And we have, I mean, like you're saying, much of the uh, the younger, young adults, that group, the millennials, they view the world, they do things differently where they are of service more in, out in the world. Right. And they don't bring with them the baggage that the people brought in the 50s, 60s, 70s, etc. They don't have a conflict between humanism and religion. They don't uh, feel as if they were, were told what they had to believe. Instead, they're searching for possible ways to believe and ways to be connected with their deeper spirit, whereas uh, that was what the generations tried to avoid. They don't um, have the same negative opinion about, about authority. Uh, they, you know, and, and so a lot, of the, a lot of our congregations are still trying to replicate the battles or assume that life is the way it was when they came into the congregation rather than understanding that life outside the congregation has changed and moved on in so many ways. And if they don't get a deeper connection to what the issues are now, their congregation will simply become irrelevant. Do you think they're searching less for, a, you know, actual church walls, too? I don't know. Uh, you know, it depends on who you read and what study and which age. Right? I think what they're, the, the church walls, um, well, I think, are not as important. The connection is what's important. And often you need the, the congregation's walls to help maintain that. 
the online community is great, and it often augments the in-person community rather than being something opposite to. So I think there will always be need for us getting together in person, whether it's in an owned building or that kind of structure, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, I think one of the bravest moves that I've seen a congregation do in a long time is the first Unitarian Universalist congregation in Detroit, who was, you know, had been a thriving larger congregation uh, many, you know, several decades ago, uh, and had this beautiful Gothic building, which they had over a million dollars of deferred maintenance in a, a congregation that had dwindled the active people down to less than 100. They gave their building away. It was, you know, in inner city Detroit at that point, or not inner city, but the cultural center of Detroit at that time, it, nobody wanted to buy it. So they gave it away to an organization that held similar values, and now they worship there. They have that right of, of worship there. But they realized that they were all, that all their energies were into preserving the building rather than to being religious community and seeing how they could make a real difference in people's lives. Um, and, you know, it, it's what, what often uh, gets referred to as the edifice complex. Um, that people get so tied up in, in the building, which for many has deep significance because it's the place where so much good has happened in their lives. And yet that the building itself can become the idol rather than the, the um, vehicle by which they, that those things happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're kind of in a transition, really. <laughs> we really are. <laughs> All right. Now, can you give us uh, a, a quote that's inspiring to you? Oh, well, there's, I, have, I have a whole bunch of short little um, things that, uh, that I take with me every day into my work. Um, one of them is by Henry Ford, which is appropriate since I live out, grew up outside of and now live outside Detroit, which is whether you think you can or think you can't, you're right. And then, um, then the sort of three guiding principles for much of my work is that surprised people behave badly. Transparency, transparency, transparency. Feed health and starve dysfunction. And more, recent, more recently, I've been, uh, one of my responsibilities with the Mid-America region is that I oversee and coordinate our intercultural competency work and our multiculturalism. And one of the quotes that I've learned from, heard from that which has really struck me is that diversity is where you count the people, but inclusion is where the people count. And where, where we need to go as Unitarian Universalists is to making sure we're into inclusion and not diversity. All right. And the last question I always ask everyone is, how is Unitarian Universalism as a religious denomination, uniquely positioned to serve and impact society? Oh, I could do three hours on that. Um, but I, I think that the, the major gift that we have is that we accept people where they are and that we work with people from whatever uh, theological stance they, want, they, they are in rather than saying you have to fit into this mold. 
I find that with my work with our military chaplains, I help support them, that they actually are probably the most effective, some of the most effective in the, their military settings because they can reach people no matter what their theology because we see that inherent worth and dignity and we can work with people from that point of view. And so, it, you know, we provide, uh, so that's one of our, our great strengths and it means that we can provide a place for people to explore deeply who they are without fear of censure for who they are, we still need to have boundaries around what they do with who they are, but, um, but they can be who they are. And especially as a, an out lesbian, for me to, to come out to myself in a movement that already said I was worthy has, um, has just been one of the greatest gifts for me. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much, Lisa, for being with us. And I appreciate everything that you've uh, shared with us today. It's been fun, Sharon. Well, great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the UU Perspective Podcast. And if you would like to check out the show notes and learn how to get a hold of Lisa, check that out at uuperspective.com, the website. And if you have any questions, feel free to contact me at questions at uuperspective.com. So I'd like to give a shout out to our followers who are listening. And we've got Spirit of Life UU and my friend Bill Delaney and Benjamin Kraft Rendon and also UU Young Adults for Climate Justice and the UU of Santa Monica Faith in Action. So thanks everyone for listening and have a great week and we'll see you next time. Thank you.